Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicware on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicware.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Wide-eyed Vintage, truly covetable vintage curated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, giving each piece lifetimes of wear beyond the life it has already lived. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S., For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. 
But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. the podcast that finds something new to be angry about just about every day. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. Okay, get ready for another supersize episode. I was like, oh, I could spread all this out over a few episodes, but then I thought, you know, everyone is probably going to have a little bit more free time over the next week or so, so why not give you all a little bit more to listen to, right? The great thing about this episode is that it has multiple sections, so you can kind of break it down over a few days. That's my pro tip. As an avid podcast listener and a person who's constantly cooking, cleaning, caring for plants, petting cats, etc., this is a great strategy for podcast enjoyment. So what's in this mega episode? Well, we have some awesome calls to the Clothes Horse Hotline. Then a conversation with, I know she's a fan favorite, Clothes Horse All-Star, Danny of Picnic Wear. We'll be talking about the myth of free shipping and why she utilizes the drop model for selling. Then we'll have part one of my conversation with Gabriella, a somewhat recent fashion school graduate and visual artist. We'll be talking about her experiences in fashion school along with all kinds of other things. And that's going to be followed with a conversation with another Close Horse All-Star, Meredith. She'll be talking as both a designer and a fashion school instructor about how she thinks fashion school could be more useful. She'll also be sharing some really great advice for those who are starting their career in fashion and really, I would say for anyone who wants to make a career shift or is just starting out in their own non-fashion career. Like, I feel like it's just like good life advice. See, I told you there's going to be a lot going on in this episode. But first things first, let's thank our newest Patreon supporter, Adrian Roxas. Adrian lives in Australia and she's been sewing all kinds of very cute clothes this year. In fact, just before I started recording this intro, she posted a super cute puff sleeve blouse. And I don't know if you all know this about me, but I am a lifelong fan of a good puff sleeve. (laughs) Um, Adrienne also posted a really cute and kind story about why she's supporting Clothes Horse, and it really just made my day. So thank you so much, Adrienne. It feels kind of weird and, I mean, totally awkward to ask you to support the Clothes Horse Patreon in 2020, but if you have the means and you're interested, you can find more details at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And of course, I'll include that link in the show notes because like, why would you be writing that down? (laughs) 
And remember, if you become a patron this month, no matter what tier you choose, the lowest tier is $3, you'll also receive an Anti-Brunch Society pin and membership card. And if you can't do that, but you still really want to support Clothes Horse, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts and I'll send you a pin too. Ratings and reviews help push us up the chart and that brings in more listeners. So it's actually super impactful for spreading the word of Clothes Horse. Ultimately, however, the most important thing you can do to show your support is keep listening to the pod and maybe tell some of your friends about it. You know, I've been all over the place emotionally this year, crying pretty regularly because I feel like I'll never have a job again and I'm so stressed out about money and my future and my family and you, I mean, you're all in the same boat, right? I'm feeling like I'm constantly going to lose my mind if I don't see my friends and family soon and I'm just generally feeling a confusing mixture of hopelessness and just like complete and utter rage every single day. But you know what? Every time I'm ready to just like give up, quit clothes horse, and return to watching Netflix all day and night, I'll hear from one of you or I'll see that one of you left a good review or I'll just see something that I know all of you need to hear about. And you know what? That gets me back to work. So thank you for being there for me and kind of keeping me going this year. I'm working on a lot of big clothes horse things for 2021 and I couldn't get there without you. I'm just so grateful for all of you. I'm also just going to recommend here, instead at the end of the episode like I normally do, that you listen to my other podcast, The Department. It's what I call my fun podcast. I co-host it with my friend Kim, who you might remember from the early episodes about e-commerce, and we've been doing some super fun and totally educational episodes recently. Our most recent episode is about slumber party culture of the late 80s and 90s, so it's just like a nice, fun alternative to the doom and gloom and injustice of clothes horse, but we definitely do talk about how, you know, capitalism creates trends and we're all subject to trends even if we think we're not trendy people, so check it out. (laughs) I try my hardest not to bum you out over here at clothes horse, but you know, it's hard. There's bummer shit in this world. Do you hear that sound? It's the Clothes Horse Hotline ringing, and it's our friend Sarah of Wide-Eyed Vintage. Hi, Amanda. This is Sarah from Wide-Eyed Vintage. I just listened to um, episode 38 about collecting of Beanie Babies, and this hit home so hard. Um, While I did not fall into the 90s craze of the Beanie Babies or the Precious Moments or any of, like, the ceramic bells or anything like that, I, this will come to no surprise, am an avid collector, and my husband is too. In fact, we're probably each other's own worst enemy, and um, our collections are bursting at the seams. Um, We are also the couple that tends to keep our collections in bins and tubs and not display them. Um, When quarantine hit, I did start um, pressuring my husband, who is an avid toy comic book record, um, magic cards, (laughs) Magic the Gathering cards collector. Um, He is slowly phasing out of Magic the Gathering, obviously, last or several years ago, probably about five to eight years ago, he sold off his virtual deck of Magic the Gathering cards. 
for $500. So I will say that I was grateful that he was able to recoup at least a little bit of what he bought. But again, these were virtual cards. They did not actually physically exist. And now he's, you know, sitting on hundreds, probably thousands of Magic the Gathering physical cards where, you know, you can't help but want to sell them individually, especially the ones that are worth 50 to $75. But when there's boxes of them, it is overwhelming. And he is not a good reseller. He is very sentimental and loves his collections. He's also a He-Man. He's collected He-Man toys. And then oodles of toys. Simpsons, tin toys from Japan. I could go on. Um, and records. You were talking about record day. He's obsessed with he's every record day. Yep, he's out there. My husband actually subscribes to a record a month, which has proven to give more bad records that he will not listen to than it does good. I will say I do love being able to sit in my cozy living room, you know, fire in the fireplace, put on a record, even though I have to stand back up in like 10 minutes to flip it back over. It is it is charming. I, you know, I, I am definitely, a, I don't want to say a victim. I am because I, I know what I'm doing, so I'm not a victim, but I am definitely a um, contributor to this collector universe. I will say my collections are not consistent. I tend to bounce around from collection to collection. I will say that I justify buying vintage clothing um, for myself by saying, oh, I'm going to resell that. But let me just tell you, I have six full garment racks in my basement of vintage clothing, um, things that I'm just so having a hard time letting go of because I feel like they are so special. But what's it doing down there? It's serving me no purpose. So, um, you know, we are definitely one of those couples that our collections are starting to be more of a burden than they are bringing us joy. And we know that a lot of our collections are not valuable to the extent that we bought them for. Um, however, they do bring us joy, but like I said, they're becoming a huge burden, and I do feel like I am on the verge of a hoarder's episode. I did appreciate, I think it was you that um, gave, a, <laughs> gave the um, definition of hoarder versus collector, and I would say I'm probably about halfway in between the two. So I have this somewhat grand idea, and I'm off work for two weeks, which is great because I've been so bogged down with work. I haven't even been able to do anything with Wide Eyed Vintage, but I have this idea. I just need follow through, so maybe you can be my friend that helps hold me accountable, is I want to start selling off these pieces that are clearly not important enough for us to put out on the shelf because they're in bins. And I would love to start selling off these pieces um, in an attempt to pay down my debt. I've had this idea about publicly sharing my journey of getting out of my hoarding situation. Um, I'm not proud of this. I'm actually quite embarrassed and ashamed. And the amount of money I would have if I would not be purchasing things that, and like I said, my I don't even know that I consider collection. Is there a word for someone who collects one of each type of collection? I don't know. But that's the type of person I am. I see someone with something so covetable on Instagram or something, and I'm like, I want to start doing that. So, like, this year, I started to collect vintage Santa Clauses. It's so silly. Um, anyway, so I thought about sharing my journey of getting rid of things and even starting an Instagram about, you know, a life with less and, and you know, even tracking paying down my debt with these one-off little items that I want to sell on Facebook Marketplace or 
Instagram or elsewhere. You know, and there is something to be said about donating the things that aren't going to bring you more than $20 or, you know, something like that. So, you know, this is something I mentioned to you before. It's something I'm working on with my therapist. I'm literally in the car right now, though, driving home from the thrift store. So, you know, I know my <laughs> my demons are my comfort right now, I guess you could say. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention to you is that I, too, was an avid Hello Kitty collector. It started in... I would say high school, it really grew in college, and obviously that is somewhat trickled off for me. I do, though, have the personal Hello Kitty personal massager still in the box. So if that is something that you do not have in your collection yet, I would love to send it to you because I know it would bring you more joy than it would me. Um, anyways, I have so many more things I want to talk to you about, about different episodes, but I'm going to keep this one to the collector's theme and um, just let you know how much I appreciated this episode. It really hit home to me. And while I don't, I'm not homeless yet, um, I definitely can tell that my my daughter and and even my husband are just, you know, my daughter yesterday was even like, you don't need any more Santa's mom, you know. And and I'm ashamed of that when when your 12 year old is recognizing your own your problem. So, you know. I, I'm thinking that maybe I can sell this off, pay my debt, and then when it's safe to travel, I can actually afford to do that luxury 10-year wedding anniversary trip that my husband and I had planned for this year. Um, obviously, COVID, you know, put a halt to that. But that's my ideas. So thank you for continuing to inspire me. Um, I'm, I'm telling you this so, you know, you know the impact you're making on my life, and I'm going to continue to listen to your podcast to keep me motivated and hold me accountable. First off, I want to thank Sarah for being just so real and honest with all of us. I mean, these are hard conversations to have with ourselves, much less with everyone, right? I feel like we're all on this journey together to change our consumption habits, so I want everyone to know that this is a community and a safe space for talking about our struggles with this. Let me be really honest with you. Losing my job kind of forced me to not be able to buy anything, but I have to say it has not been easy. Sometimes I'm just filled with this intense desire to buy something new to wear, and it makes me like clench my jaw. Like it's just so powerful. It's I can't explain it, but it's just such an intense feeling. And then I'm filled with this like crazy rage and sadness about how I can't just buy something and I feel so powerless and desperate and all these bad things all at once. But then I like come to my senses and I remind myself that there's no reason for any of us to be buying all this stuff and saving the planet is going to be all about consuming less. You know, all the things I talk about here. And then I feel better. You know, I obviously had to quit therapy uh, when I got laid off from my job because it's that's a luxury in 2020. And so... I've been trying to find all these other ways to work through my own issues with like myself, my self-esteem, how that's wrapped up in what I wear and who I look like to the world. I mean, these are really, really hard things to be unpacked. I mean, let me tell you, the desire to buy, like buying as a habit, as a regular part of our routine, we've been programmed to be consumers since we were children. I know I just mentioned the department, but in this week's episode, Kim was talking about stickers and she talked about how when we were all like eight years old and just hoarding stickers, 
And it really stuck with me, no pun intended. I thought it was interesting how she, I mean, she hit the nail on the head that we were hoarding these stickers, not exactly collecting them. Like we've been training to buy stuff, to collect things, to possibly hoard things since we were little kids. And as we've talked about, and as Sarah mentions, that line between collecting and hoarding is so fine. It's hard to see what's happening until you're well past that line. I would say more of us than not crossed that line a long time ago. Sarah, I want you to know that I'm here for you in any way to help you on this journey. In fact, I think you should call the hotline regularly and let us know how it's going because this is going to be so inspiring and motivating for everybody else who's listening and experiencing the same thing. I like this idea of you selling all your stuff and then using the proceeds to go on a luxurious anniversary trip. I mean, what an amazing end goal. And if you do this in tandem with therapy, I think you're going to see so many great things happen in your life. I also think your husband has to be a part of this. It will be so good for the both of you. And it can be this like shared experience that makes your relationship even stronger. I'm just so proud of you and where you're going. And yes, I will gladly take that Hello Kitty massager off your hands. Just saying. (laughs) Okay, well, the phone is ringing again, and it's Kyle, our first ever male caller. In fact, the first male voice in Clothes Horse history. Hi, Amanda. Uh, Big, huge fan of the podcast. I love everything that you're doing and all the stuff you talk about. Um, my name's Kyle Decker. I live in New York City, and I used to work in retail selling uh, men's uh, footwear. And uh, I know that you talk a lot about, you know, the fashion industry in general and the idea um, of uh, aspirational uh, aspects of clothing purchases. And I, I wondered if, you know, it were possible to kind of talk a little bit about specifically the menswear industry um, and the way that aspirational purchasing factors in that. Because in all of my experience with menswear, uh, there's this long-standing idea of, like, the gentleman um, and that, you know, if you purchase the right uh, things and carry yourself in the right way that you will, you know, achieve status as a gentleman. Um, and uh, I think it, that's, a, that's an interesting concept because, uh, you know, it plays into this uh, idea that, you know, you should be trying to look wealthy or trying to look you know, uh, old money. And it, there's all these ways that it interacts with, you know, ideas of, you know, uh, being anti-poor or anti-minority and uh, anti-POC. Um, and, you know, in certain circles, there's this idea of, uh, you know, really traditional clothing and aspirational to look as traditional as possible and follow all the rules to a certain degree. And, um, yeah, I, I think that specifically in menswear, that rears its head in, in that kind of way and sometimes in really overt ways. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's just an interesting topic to kind of discuss uh, and the different ways that the, um, that manifests uh, both in menswear and in fashion in general. Uh, thanks again for everything you're doing. Your podcast is phenomenal. I love all of your insight and uh, I look forward to uh, getting to hear from you or just, you know, listening to the podcast more. Thank you and enjoy your holiday. Bye-bye. Well, You're probably not surprised to hear that I have so much to say about Kyle's message. I mean, for one, 
we need to do an episode about men's clothing. I know it's long overdue. So I'm saying this out loud right now to all of you. If you have worked in menswear as a buyer or a designer, please message me. Or if you know someone, send them my way. I have very little men's buying experience, but I do know that there are certain aspects of it that are so different from women's clothing, strictly from a strategic perspective. It still suffers from all of the same fast fashion effects on the apparel industry, you know, like lower quality, turning around product fast, bad fabrics, all of those things. But men do shop a lot differently, and that part of it has always been really fascinating to me. The first thing I thought of when I was listening to Kyle's message was the dress codes at clubs, both like nightclubs and private clubs, that primarily apply to men. You know, like no sneakers, no hats, no jeans, maybe a collared shirt or jacket is required. And if you didn't know this already, well, let me be the first to tell you that these policies of, quote, acceptable clothing for men are designed to keep men of color and low-income men out of these establishments. In fact, I would take it one step further and say that I assume that these policies are intended to keep all people of color and poor people out of these establishments because if you're racist and classist, you're probably also super sexist and you assume that women wouldn't be coming alone and they can't come in if their male companions are turned away. It's just so gross. And if you think this is like an antiquated idea or it's only at the country club or out in the country or you know maybe you have all these ideas that the South lives in the past or something like that, I'm here to tell you that this is happening in cities all over the U.S. and maybe even abroad. Like last year, some coworkers of mine wanted to have a happy hour at a bar in Center City, Philadelphia that had this kind of dress code. I was like, yeah, no, I'm not giving a place like that any of my money. I texted a little bit with Kyle after I heard his message and we continued the conversation because guess what? I can text you from the hotline. And we specifically talked about this idea of gentlemanly dressing, which I have so many problems with that. Kyle said, it's also worth noting, I feel that a lot of the guys pushing this gentleman notion have been found being openly racist and sexist on social media. So the gentleman thing is almost entirely superficial and based on wealth. And I could not agree more. Although I do want to hear more about these dudes being racist and sexist on social media. Like let's call them out by their names. I will say this. For one of my jobs, while I was technically serving a female customer, I bought from a lot of men's lines because the brand had a more unisex masculine aesthetic. And so I, you know, I would go to trade shows that were more focused on men's clothing. I would go to showrooms that only carried men's brands. Like it was kind of a new world to me after years of working in women's apparel. And I used to dread dealing with any of those like gentleman brands and sales reps because they were so sexist and creepy to me. In fact, I will say this too. It's really hard to be a female buyer buying men's clothing, period, because that world which once again, I was like so unaware of until I had that job, is so sexist. These like sales reps would be so patronizing to me, talk down to me like I was new to the world, ask me if I wanted a salad for lunch, you know, like I just, oh, so gross. (laughs) Anyway, I have so many stories there. That could be a whole episode right there. But ultimately, this gentleman aesthetic, putting my own experiences aside, is just a consumer story. 
especially when we go back to the old days of wearing a suit. Because think about it. You need the jacket and the pants, all right. You need the dress shirt. You need the tie. Well, then you need a pocket square. You need dress socks. You're not wearing like tube socks with that. Of course, you need some dress shoes. I mean, dressing men this way was like a cash cow. I've read so many depressing articles about how casual dressing kind of destroyed Brooks Brothers because suddenly men didn't need to buy so many things just to get dressed. So soon they were losing the sport coat in favor of a sweater. Then men were just wearing a dress shirt and chinos. Then that turned into a polo shirt and soon it was like a t-shirt or a plaid button-up. That kind of thing. It was just a natural evolution. And you know what that meant? That men were buying less stuff. Do I think that men lost civility by dressing more casually? (laughs) Well, uh, no. I mean, have you seen Mad Men? (laughs) It doesn't seem like men were more civil back in the suit and hat era. They were just sweatier from wearing all those layers during the summer. I mean, I think about that all the time when I'm watching that show. How do they do it? (laughs) How did they do it, I guess, is the better question. But as suits and ties have become less common, less the uniform of the everyman, or at least the middle class man, they became just the outfit of the wealthy. I mean, sometimes a working class person would wear a suit on a special occasion or for a funeral. Of course, there are also industries and careers where a suit is mandatory for both men and women, lawyers, finance, etc. But those aren't exactly blue-collar jobs. And so the suit became the uniform of wealth. And when I think about these gentleman dudes, I just see guys who are trying to hold on to like this old-timey, antiquated idea of wealth, of white men running the world, of women at home in nylons cooking dinner. I'm, ugh. I'm not sure how that fits into this new world, and I'm not mad about that. That said, Dustin wore a white suit for our wedding, and he was majorly babely, so I think a suit can make a strong statement at the right time. And also, I I feel like everyone should wear what makes them happy. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I wear a dress 365 days a year. That's what feels right to me, even, you know, when I've been home for eight months podcasting and hanging out laundry. So... If a man wants to wear a suit every day, I'm not going to argue with that, but let's not say that the suit falling out of favor is some decline in the the professionalism and civility of men because we know that that is not true. That yes, perhaps uncivil behavior is a lot more noticeable these days, but I would say that's a function of the times we live in and has nothing to do with clothing. Anyway... I would love to hear everyone else's thoughts about this. It has come to my attention this week that there are at least a few men listening to the show. So I want to know how you feel about this. I mean, you've already told me, the few of you that have reached out, that you're really stoked about my math skills. (laughs) Now tell me how you feel about this, quote, decline in civility or what you think of this gentlemanly style. You know, I talked to Dustin about it. His opinions are pretty similar to mine where he was just like, barf. What do you all have to say? You can drop me a line via email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast or, and this is my favorite way for you to reach out to me, you can call the Close Horse Hotline, 717-925-7417. And that goes for 
everyone. Do you have a question, a story to share? Give me a call. I'm also going to just mention right here that I would like to, in January, which is just a few weeks away, do a special episode that I'm calling the Etsy-sode about kind of, you know, like what's up with Etsy and how has it changed and how is it letting down sellers or affecting their ability to effectively, you know, run their own business, be successful entrepreneurs. If you sell on Etsy, if you have in the past or you thought about it, but then you didn't because of XYZ, please give me a call. I would love to collect all those stories for one, so other people can hear them, but also to kind of give myself, I don't know, help me outline what I want to research for this episode. Okay, well, now we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk to Danny of Picnicware. And if you haven't been listening to the blurbs in the beginning, that's where W-E-A-R. And we're going to talk about shipping and all kinds of other stuff. So today, Danny has dropped by via the magic of the telephone of the Closed Horse Hotline to talk about some topics near and dear to her heart, one of which is shipping. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, like you've said, Amanda, this has come up in your Instagram a lot, but not so much talked about on the podcast. But I think that there's some stuff to chat about here because even as a customer myself and before I started selling what, like 2015, I think is when I opened my vintage Etsy shop, I definitely was, um, there were some misunderstandings I had about shipping. I, I feel embarrassed to say this, but clearly I wasn't thinking about it, but I really thought that when someone offered free shipping, it was like, free for everyone. I don't know how, oh, oh my gosh, my cat's falling off my lap. Okay, Mia, that's enough. Sorry. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I literally thought that there was such a thing as free shipping and that maybe this person had some sort of deal with the post office or I don't even know. I guess I didn't think it through fully. But I can't imagine that there aren't more people out there like I was five years ago who truly think that there is such a thing as free shipping. Um, <laughs> like, seriously, I, I, I've even had people ask me, like, on Depop and stuff, um, like, I'll buy this, but can you do free shipping? And I'm just like, you mean, can I do a discount, right? right. Because there's right. no such thing as free shipping. It would just mean me saying like, okay, well, I'm charging $5 for shipping, so it's $20 plus $5 shipping, so you just want it for $20. You want me to, you know, really be making $15, you know? Right. So I, I just think that that's something that needs to be talked about because, you know, the big box retailers like Amazon, et cetera, have really trained people to think that they shouldn't have to pay for shipping. Shipping is a luxury. Like, getting something delivered to your doorstep doesn't come free. Like, there are a lot of things involved in that process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and it never costs nothing. Right, right. And I think, I mean, it's interesting that you would say that, you know, you thought there really was a way that sometimes people would get free shipping, like that they could extend to their customers. Because right. I mean, I've obviously had to work on the other side of that for a really long time. So I know that's not the case, but I can see how all these big brands would make you think that, right? But yeah. you have to step back and realize that like, okay, most, most, I, and when I say most, I'm saying all companies except for Amazon 
rely on third-party services to do their directly. Mm-hmm. So USPS, FedEx, UPS, DHL, that kind of thing. So obviously, like, UPS isn't going to be like, hey, like, just want to let you know you can ship $500 worth of stuff for free this month. Like, that would never happen. <laughs> I mean, that would be crazy. And, you know, when you think about the like, – like you're saying, Danny, getting something delivered to your house is a luxury because – it's not at the same as you going to the store, picking it out, paying, carrying it out to your car, and bringing it home. It's like right. someone pulls it from a shelf and packs it in a box. you got to pay them. They send it to the dock where someone puts the label on it and loads it on the truck. you got to pay that person. Then mm-hmm. UPS, whoever picks it up and delivers it, you got to pay the delivery guy, the gas, the maintenance of the vehicles, give carbon offset kind of stuff, and then pay someone to deliver it to the house. There's more steps in between where these like these huge hubs where like thousands of people are sorting packages and stuff, all that right. costs money and the rent of that and we've seen the pictures. Me. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's like of how bad oh my it gosh. is with They're, the postal service. They give me like anxiety, like stabbing pains in my head. <laughs> I just like look at those pictures and I'm like, one of my picnic wear packages are buried under that pile. I just know it. Oh, for sure. Sh- for sure, right? And I mean, USPS and UPS have been struggling all year. I mean, I don't know yeah. about you, but well before the holidays, we were not getting our mail regularly. Our packages would always come in like one fell swoop, like mm, like a bunch all at once. Yeah. Yes. And UPS was like lost so many things of mine because oh. they couldn't deliver. They were shorthanded, blah, blah, blah. Eventually it would somehow accidentally get shipped back to the sender. So shipping is really complicated and really expensive so of course it costs money and it's a service that you're paying for because you don't have to go get it yourself yeah like it's a service just like getting someone to cut your hair or do your nails yeah I mean honestly I I can't be mad at the shipping stuff at all like as much as I I'm mad on behalf of my customers I have the same USPS guy come to my house has been for at least a year, probably before that, but I was never paying attention. I wasn't home enough to know who my nail guy was. Mm -hmm. And now he's like my buddy. He's the sweetest guy ever. Always says hello. His name is Mills. He, we were talking the other day because I put this on my Instagram. My husband made some like treats and I gave some to him and I was asking him, like, if he liked them. He was like, my girl is asking for more. He was so sweet. But he <laughs> was telling me that um, he's working seven days a week right now. Jeez. And overtime hours. Yeah, Because I there's it. not enough people, there's not enough postal workers to get the job done. So he's kind of forced into doing it. So, like, I can't be mad at that. I No. When I have customers complaining to me, like, it makes me feel really frustrated because I'm just like, God, they're doing their damnedest. And if it weren't for, like, Mills and all the other USPS people, like, I wouldn't have a business this year. I don't Mm -hmm. have a storefront. I don't have – there aren't storefronts who I would even want to sell in because people aren't going retail shopping at brick and mortars right now as much as they were before. So you and I were talking about this before you hit record, but, like, Right now, it's like, if you don't get your present in time, it's not the end of the world. Everyone likes opening presents no matter what time of year. So if they're opening it a week Mm -hmm. after whatever holiday you celebrate, like, that's not the end of the world. You still got a present, you know? 
And I so. personally would say that I kind of like the straggler gifts that come in in early oh, to mid-January. Because yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. it's like, what? A surprise. Like, the holidays aren't over. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. And I like, I get it. Listen, this year sucks. We've all had to be like, well, it could be worse all year long, right? And yeah. now it's like, can I even just get my gifts on time? But you know what? Probably not. And it will, it will nope. be okay. My family's not getting their gifts on time. We've all already accepted that. I shipped it within the window that the USPS was recommending. And I'm, it's pretty clear to me now that no one's getting their gifts. Yeah. It sucks, but. It does suck. And, and it sucks because it's like the way we've ended a whole year of like compromise. Yes. Like, oh, I can't do anything for my birthday. That sucks, but it could yeah. be worse. Or, you know, like we couldn't really go on vacation. It really is symbolic of how shitty this year It is. It is. It's like the icing on the really shitty yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. You like, don't get to see your family and they don't even get the gift. I that know. I know. It's, across it's, the country, you know. It's, it's the worst. And I mean, I just have to believe that next year will be better. And if it's not, yeah. we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But the shipping thing is so interesting to me because like you said, if someone says to you, Hey, I'll I'll pay twenty dollars for this, but can I give you free shipping? I mean, you hit the nail on the head that you're really you're saying, can I get this for fifteen dollars plus? Right, shipping? that's what it really exactly. is. Exactly. Yes, I think the thing that we you and I were talking about before that really hurt small businesses is Etsy because Etsy mm-hmm. is kind of when we think of small businesses, small makers, vintage sellers, like Etsy is kind of like the main hub for those people. So that's where a lot of people go shopping. A lot of people, you know, start their businesses on Etsy and they introduced, basically what they did was they switched up their algorithm and they told the whole community of sellers this, that if you offer free shipping, the algorithm will favor you Mm -hmm. and you will be promoted more by Etsy. People will, customers will see your listings more often if you offer free shipping. So they kind of, you know, back people, back these sellers into a corner where they either offered it or they didn't. And so either way, their sales would suffer. Um, and it really hurt a lot of businesses who, for instance, offer things that are like, like jewelry or something like that, where adding mm-hmm. like $5 onto their really low price thing, especially if they had like a loyal, loyal customer base who all of a sudden sees you're offering free shipping. That's awesome. But how come it's more expensive than it used to be? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not putting it together that that's why. Like, it's still, you're still saying this, paying the same price, but they want to pay the same price as before and then get free shipping. Right, right. They don't want it padded in. And so I was so. telling you how, like, you know, we all have this expectation of free shipping now because of all the big companies that do it. And, you know, like when we talk about like, let's say Sephora, Sephora offers all kinds of different tricks to get free shipping. The reality is that Sephora is still paying for that shipping, whether they charge you or not. But the larger companies, for one, they are able to negotiate a much lower rate. The larger the company, the lower the rate they get, because someone like say UPS is like, listen, Mm. You're going to ship this many packages this year. The normal rate we would charge you is six. We're going to, we're going to do it for $3 or $4. Now that's for the massive companies. The smaller right. companies can, they can negotiate some level of a discount. But when I was working for a smaller startup, shipping was killing us. We could only do free yeah. shipping like twice a year. 
because right. it was so expensive for us. And so also another thing, and I think of this with you and your candle, is that yes. say Sephora might be able to get a shipping rate of $3 a box on a typical box, but you yeah. say you go on Sephora and you buy like five huge bottles of conditioner that are going to weigh a lot more, suddenly yeah. they're paying $15 to ship that for you. Right. This is the kind of thing we would run into when I was working for a startup all the time is that someone would throw a candle in the box and suddenly everything was out the window. <laughs> like we were losing money on that sale. Thank so, you so much for bringing up my candles because <laughs> <laughs> that is not something I really thought through that much. And in reality, those candles cost $10 to ship. For yeah. Me. And that's like between nine to $10 because they're heavy and right, right. You know, they're in glass. So I, mm-hmm. I want to make sure one of them has broken in transit. So I realized that I needed to like really up my packaging. So what that means is like a slightly bigger box. Mm-hmm. So that I can really make sure it's fully padded and like I could chuck it across the room because let's be honest, that's often what's happening with how, you know, quickly um, these 100. delivery things are happening. Yeah, for so sure. So I needed, so yeah, they, they, so as much as I want to avoid the whole sort of honestly like marketing ploy of the whole free shipping thing, it's, I feel like I have to kind of acknowledge it a little bit because if I charge, you know, these candles cost $36. If I, if I charge $36 and then someone has to pay $10 for shipping, guess mm-hmm. what? They're not going to buy it. So I, I end up charging a little bit less than what it really costs and mm-hmm. it just eats away at my profit. A lot yeah. of people would have, would charge more for that candle. I don't know if you've noticed that there's like a lot of candles in this world. They're like 40 bucks. No, I know. There's something like have, $100. It's yeah, pretty wild. They all have the same ingredients as the candle you just sold. Right. You right. know, it's just that, like, they're baking that shipping and packaging cost into it. Because also, yeah. if, you're like a, if you're working for a larger company and you're getting in, like, pallets of candles, about 10% of them are going to show, show up broken anyway. So you have to cover that cost, too. It's wow, like, yeah, interesting. Candles... When you when I was reading your post on Instagram, I was like, oh man, I'm getting flashbacks to this one job where <laughs> I was I was bringing in candles like crazy, and they were just selling and selling and selling. But like customer service would come to me and be like, uh, so like half the candles are showing up broken to the customers and blah 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 blah. Oh. And I was like, no, it's like not the candles. But that kind of brings so you know retailers are padding that into the cost, which brings me to. The next thing, which is, like, how do they cover for that free shipping in the first place if they are also paying for shipping? And that that is covered in a wide variety of ways. They increase Mm -hmm. the cost of the stuff they're selling you. They pay their warehouse workers terribly. They, you know, decrease the quality of the goods so they can make a higher margin off the same price. I mean, it's a lot of of creative accounting there like that. And Mm -hmm. I was telling you something that I hear time and time again, if you're – really into nerdy business publications, which I am, where you find out that Amazon forever, including right now, now Amazon is a profitable company and they make billions of dollars in profit, especially this year, but they lose billions of dollars on shipping every quarter, ranging from six to $10 billion each quarter on shipping because Almost everything ships for free, right? If you have Prime, and I think in general, everyone's offering free shipping, blah, blah, blah. Well, Amazon still uses, like, USPS and UPS to deliver stuff, although I'm sure you've noticed there are more and more 
Amazon vans out there delivering stuff. And mm-hmm. that's because, you know, Jeff Bezos and his buddies were like, we're losing so much money on shipping. What if we started doing it ourselves and we like didn't have full-time employees, everybody was like a gig worker and like we even mm-hmm. maybe rented the van. So it was like a low, low cost for us. We could do this for cheaper and lose less money while shipping even more for free. Um, wow. But Amazon makes up that money in tons of other ways, right? They mark up their product. Um, if you sell on their site and you don't like, you don't ship through them, you ship on your own, you pay really high fees to be carried mm-hmm. on the Amazon site. They sell ads. They sell prime memberships. You have to remember mm-hmm. they make a ton of profit off of Whole Foods, which can help cover some of this like shipping. Oh, yeah. I could go on and on and on. We know that Amazon is not a great company. Uh, a lot of the shitty things they do are, you know, in part so they can give us all free shipping. Yeah. Not, not that it's like our fault. I don't want to like say it that way, but they cut corners and don't pay people because they are making up money in other ways. No, but I mean, that's why it's really important for people to understand that because it's, it's all like we talk about like how capitalism has programmed us to expect certain things or Mm -hmm. it it just goes in line with that. It's just a continuation of all these things that we've been kind of conditioned to think are normal, but we have to Mm -hmm. understand the repercussions and we have to understand what kind of snowball effect that has, not just on like Amazon and the Amazon employees and the gig workers who are, you know, shipping the stuff, but also the kind of trickle-down effect it has on other businesses, medium-sized businesses, small businesses, you know, like these things that we kind of take for granted and we don't really understand how it fits into the bigger picture and the kinds of effects it has on mm-hmm. 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 on everyone else. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I think, I mean, it's like I said, shipping and all of these other things are service and we need to treat it that way. Like mm-hmm. shipping has value, you know, yeah. it's not, yeah. it's not an annoying come for free. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we just have to reset our expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. <laughs> and just like pay for the freaking shipping. God, I like hate that. I know. I honestly, like if I, if I could urge like all small business owners to just be clear about what they pay for shipping. I don't know if it would ever make a difference if we could ever get to the part where like, or the point when everyone kind of would like really just be clear about like how much shipping costs, like maybe, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of too late for that maybe because we're all so, you know, I remember actually years ago at my last fast fashion job when they were doing, um, some market research and they were, I guess they were getting polling from like Gen Z consumers. And it was like the statistics on how many just never thought they should ever have to pay for shipping. Like our company changed to free shipping after that, because it was like, it would be a reason not to buy just by seeing that they had to pay for shipping Right. So I, I I feel like we're a little too far gone now, honestly. Um, it's just an expectation now. I know, and I hate that. But, I mean, I also think, like, you know, most people think their clothes are made by robots or something, too. And so it's eye-opening for them that <laughs> people are making pennies to sew their clothes. So 
I think we yeah. kind of need to pull back the curtain on this whole shipping thing because when a company switches to all free shipping, that money comes from somewhere else. It means yeah. maybe the employees don't have as good of a health insurance plan next year or they have to pay higher premiums or they make that they have many to cut corners somehow. Yeah. Right. That many more people in their stores become part time, which means no benefits or right. they cut their payroll or they squeeze the factories for even cheaper costs, which means the workers get paid even less. It's like ultimately you can draw a direct line between free shipping and someone somewhere not having a good life. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. I know, but it's connected. It is. It is, sadly. Well, you also wanted to talk about the drop means of selling stuff. Yeah. I, cause I was, before we started on this call, I was listening to your episode where you were taking, um, some of the call your hotline calls and I believe it was Elena. What was that her mm-hmm. name who called in and, and was talking about the, the drops that a lot of these small businesses are doing and are they feeding into that kind of FOMO get it now? Like you have to buy, buy, buy sort of fast fashion model. And, and honestly that has been something that has kind of worried me from the beginning. And, like you mentioned right after, which I really appreciated, this is not, this is not done as a marketing tool for me. This is simply how it, how I, how my business is structured and the mm-hmm. only way I am able to structure my business because if I were to make an item and try and sell it immediately, that would mean that every single item I make, I'd have to photograph it and then list it. And so, mm-hmm. You know, there's something to be said for things be- being done in, like, an assembly line. It-, it shaves off a lot of time. So what I do now is I make, like, a bunch at a time, photograph all of them, list all of them, and then I announce to my followers that they're dropping at this certain time. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon after I started doing that, I realized, like, the kind of effect it was having is this – this um I don't know how to describe it, but like this kind of urgency, I guess, because, you know, especially in the beginning, things were selling really, really fast when, when my production was really quite slow, um, mm-hmm. it still is slow, but, um, but yeah, it, it, that did make me a little bit nervous because I don't like the idea that someone would have to just rush really quickly to buy something. And that completely defeats the purpose of my whole future vintage versus future garbage because like if you want something to be in your closet forever and you want to cherish it forever then those choices take time to think through Mm -hmm. and those are not things that you buy I mean some every once in a while like I've bought something you know at the spur of the moment just you know just because I'm like "Ah, this is amazing and it's still my favorite piece or whatever but most of those things that you have for a long time are more thoughtful purchases Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I I don't really have an answer to that, but it's definitely something that worries me um, because I, I really hope that people are still, at least maybe, like you said about Big Bud Press, like you've been wanting to buy something for a while. So, yes, maybe you had to set an alarm and rush to get it and throw it in your cart and purchase right away. But you, this is still a premeditated purchase you've been thinking about. Right. For a while. So that's right. what I'm kind of like hoping is the situation with people who are purchasing really quickly of mine is they've been wanting something for a while, but 
they know that they have to act fast when they when they go live. I mean, I think you do a really good job of kind of showing what's coming. So it's not like a total surprise drop. And that's what I try to think do about with the it. newsletter. That's why I try and get people to sign up with the newsletter because that will give you the whole array of everything. And and Selena does the same thing. And I copied mm-hmm. this model from her. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Like, I totally was like, oh, that's smart that she does that. I'm going to do it too. Um so I, yeah, I think that that is helpful because you kind of get the whole scope of the collection um, and then you can, you know, you know what you want when it goes live. Totally. So. And, you know, like I said in that, that episode, I understand why smaller brands have to do this because, like, you're a one-woman show, you know? Mm-hmm. You're making it. You need to, like, have cash flow coming in, so you're going to do it in these individual drops, mm-hmm. materials, like you have to get materials, et cetera, et cetera. When it becomes problematic is how larger companies who don't need to do that. Yeah. They do use it as a marketing ploy. Supreme, that's their entire model. And Supreme actually got the lowest score of all brands on Remake's 2020 Transparency Report. No way. They got a big fat zero. (gasps) Yeah. Are you serious? Wow. I have always had serious issues with Supreme and like the culture there and how yeah. it's it's like very misogynist. It's also like no one gives a fuck about sustainability or they wouldn't be doing all this hype culture right drops collection kind of stuff. And uh I see like I've worked places where we're like, oh, how can we copy what Supreme has? How can we bottle mm-hmm. that? And that's that's where it becomes a problem where yeah. bigger retailers are like, how about we order ten thousand? We'll put them in the warehouse, but we'll only make a thousand available for sale. People will lose their shit, and then two weeks later, we'll put out the other nine thousand. Like, no, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other thing. That's a whole. I other promise, thing. I'm not doing that. I, I would love to come over to your I house. I have ten thousand yeah. hats in my closet here <laughs> in my apartment. You, I like go to open a closet to put my coat in there. You're like, no, like, don't open that. And I'm out. like, yeah, thousands of hats fall on top of me. No, you're totally not doing that. But I could see, I could see how there's concern about that out there, especially if like you're a slow fashion fan. You know, Elena and her friends are really into Ace and Jig and a lot of those like adjacent mm. brands. Like you are engaging in that culture because you are so adverse to fast fashion that you might become right. fearful that you're falling into that. And right. I mean. I love that people are thinking about that. You know, that's incredible. And I'm like, yes, keep up the good work. But I don't think that someone needs to feel ashamed because they're making or selling on the drop model when it's like an actual genuine means to, you know, running your business. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, do you have any exciting new stuff coming for next month? I know you're trying to survive the holidays Uh, right now. Yeah. And I'm, What's really exciting for me is taking a little bit of time off to just kind of regroup and figure out what rest looks like for me. <laughs> I was literally talking with my therapist and I was like, but what, what does rest mean? Like, does that mean I have to just like, like I was very confused as to like what like time for me really meant because mm-hmm. I've kind of lost that this year. Um, right. But I'm excited because also I feel like it's a time to like let my wheels kind of turn and figure out what what's coming and and I think I'm just kind of gonna use some time to be creative and I have all these ideas I've been sketching out of like new products I want to bring but I have to like 
chill out because I can't do everything. Um, so I feel like I'm going to maybe spend some time creating like a bunch of different photos that are kind of like in my brain. And, you know, I really appreciate my following and the feedback that people give me. So maybe in the new year, I'll, I'll be kind of uh, teasing a few different ideas and see what people respond to the most. So cool. yeah, it's going to be just like some kind of creative time. So more to come. I'm thinking it's tough because I want to, I, I'm a garment designer, you know, like I've never been an accessory designer until like mm-hmm. this year, but I do really like the, the inclusivity of accessories. Um, but I also want to offer some more garments. Like, you know, I did a few shorts last year and I started to do some like pullovers in the towels. Um, but I just have to figure out how I can do that while still being like size inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a matter of just doing like fewer kind of one of a kind special garments, but then, you know, I still have some more accessory ideas that are of course, like anyone can use. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just a, a fun time to kind of get to explore and see, um, what's coming next for picnic wear. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Do you like you, Posted something that you were like working on, and I got really excited. It was a top, and I was like, "Oh my oh, gosh, yes. more of that!" Was, like, a proto I made, and it was like really, really fun. And I still have to figure out because it had had a collar, but like the the double layers of the towels was a little thick, so I have to figure out how to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not double layered or something, but yeah, I, I'm really excited to do. I, people have been asking me a lot about tops, but I want to figure out, like, how to do it differently because, you know, I've always been super inspired by, in the 60s and 70s, how, you know, garments were made from towels um, mm-hmm. and fabrics are so luxurious, mm-hmm. but I want to do it a little bit differently. I want to don't want to do the, the exact, like, robes or sort of things that they made mm-hmm. in the 60s, so I'm trying to figure out, like, what's what's the new kind of 2021 silhouette that I want to put forward. So, yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. I'm excited too. I can't wait to see it. Well, do you have anything Ooh. else you'd like everyone to hear? Not at the moment. <laughs> I'm, sure <laughs> I'm sure you'll be back. I've got, I've got your hotline number programmed <laughs> into my phone. So <laughs> y'all will hear from me when I do. Well, I get excited every time I get a notification and, you know, Google like transcribes it and sends it to me. Oh and it's always, I'm sure it's always bonkers. It's always like, so I'm like, is Danny high? But <laughs> <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. It does always say, Hey, it's Danny D and it spells it D A N N Y. And I'm like, Ooh, it's Danny. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we got to talk this. It's a good way to like get Thank my day you. going. Yes. All right. I will talk to you later then. Thanks, Amanda. You know, I'm so glad that Danny wanted to talk about shipping because even though I've talked about it a lot on Instagram, I haven't really talked about it much here. And just to reiterate, I can't say this enough. Shipping is never, ever free. If you aren't paying for it outright on your order, you're paying it for it with higher prices or lower quality products or Someone on the supply chain is paying for that shipping by being paid less for their own work. You know what? We need to normalize paying for shipping because we see it as a valueless thing, but hey, 
it has so much value. Like really sit down and think about it beyond the gas and the people working. Think about the value it has for you because it's a real service. It saves you the work of going to the store to buy something. It saves you time, which I hear is money. It saves you gas, annoyance, all of that. And right now in 2020, it also allows you to feel safer because you aren't exposing yourself to other people. So pay for shipping. It's a mindset that I'm trying to reset for myself too. It's not easy because we've all been programmed to expect free shipping and now also free returns. You know, I've worked in buying long enough to remember buying in the pre-e-commerce era, then, you know, the beginning stages and now where we are right now and everything in between. And I remember specifically at Nasty Gal, we did not offer free returns because you know what? It costs a lot of money to ship stuff back and forth, right? And it kept our return rate like super duper low. You know, we've talked about returns a lot here. Today in 2020, we're looking at 30 to 40% of all online purchases being returned. Well, at Nasty Gal, our return rate was like microscopic because no one wanted to pay to ship stuff back. And I think to a certain extent, it probably encouraged people to not or perhaps discouraged people, I guess, from overbuying with the plan of returning. And so when we did start offering free shipping, suddenly the returns were insane. And, you know, returns are wasteful in a whole lot of ways, which we've talked about in the past and we're going to talk about on some upcoming episodes. But I think we need to revisit our relationship or how we view things being shipped back and forth in this world. And I know that's not easy because like so many other things in our lives, we've all been programmed to expect free shipping. Like retailers have allowed us, perhaps even encouraged us to believe that shipping is not a service, that it has no value, that it's just an annoyance. I mean, that's how Amazon gets us to all sign up for Prime because I'm going to tell you, it's not the video streaming service that brings us in because... While there are a few gems on Amazon Prime (laughs) video, most of it feels like the dregs of basic cable. We're signing up because we want that shipping. Okay, moving on. It's time for you to meet Gabriella. Gabriella is actually a newish Pegasus sponsor, but I swear that happened after we recorded this conversation. I'm not like selling slots on the podcast. However, for a one-time gift of $200, you can be on an episode. (laughs) (laughs) that's different though okay and I will say that it actually happens a lot around here that I interview someone for the podcast and then they become a patreon and I like to think that's because guests see how much work goes into making this happen and I'm just so grateful for all of that appreciation and support Today, Gabriella and I are going to talk about her experiences in fashion school along with some research I did into fashion graduates and their overall feelings Specifically, she will be speaking to her experience as a student at the Art Institute, which is a for-profit chain of schools that at its peak had more than 50 locations. Some people get that confused with the Art Institute of Chicago, but that's not actually part of it at all. And as far as I can tell, it's a very upstanding institution, or at least as upstanding as any higher education can be in the 21st century. That's a whole other thing. That's a different podcast. (laughs) The Art Institutes were owned by Education Management Corporation, otherwise known as EDMC, 
a company that actually went public, meaning it had stockholders, in 2009. The Art Institutes offered degree programs at the associates, bachelor's, and master's levels, as well as non-degree diploma programs. You could study graphic design, media arts and animation, culinary arts, photography, digital filmmaking, video production, interior design, audio production, fashion design, game art and design, baking and pastry, and fashion marketing. And I have actually known so many people over the years who have gone to these schools. This chain of schools saw a decline in enrollment as the result of the 2008 recession. And at that point, the schools were accused of using all kinds of predatory methods to get students in the door. I read this very, very upsetting CNBC article from 2018 about the art institutes, and I have to read some of the sections to you because they're really, really infuriating. Sean Joyce used to sit at his desk at the Art Institute of Charlotte in North Carolina on edge. That's because a staff member could burst into his classroom at any moment and lead him on the, quote, walk of death. That was when students would be summoned to the for-profit school's financial aid office and told they'd run out of loans, Joyce said. Then the student would be informed that he or she needed to borrow more money immediately or else leave the school. Joyce said, you never knew if you were coming back. Now, at this time, the time Joyce is referring to, EDMC, the company that owned the Art Institute chain, was also partially owned by Goldman Sachs. Never a name you want connected to your education. (laughs) Joyce later switched to an associate's degree program. He was originally working on a bachelor's, but he made this change because he was afraid his loans would run out. And that associate's degree cost him $90,000 more than the original bachelor's degree quote he had received from admissions officers when he signed up. On average, conversely, an associate's degree from a community college is about $7,000. None of this is surprising to me because apparently the art institutes were raising tuition year over year over year just constantly in a way that was outpacing any other price increases out there including other higher education institutions. And some of the reading I did, and I didn't go too deeply into this, only a few articles, admissions officers, the staff, whatever you want to call them, at these schools were actually concerned that they were seeing lower enrollment rates because people were getting turned off by the high tuition or parents were sort of saying, I can't pay this anymore. This is so different in cost than when my child signed up two or three years ago. And so... The push there was like, okay, we'll just sell them on more of this like great job placement we're going to give them, which never happened. One article I read said that a student was like reached out to his like, you know, school work placement office and they just sent him links to Craigslist, which he could have found on his own. They also just continued to push these private loans, which we'll talk about a little bit more too. Now, the art institutes are not the only for-profit schools out there. There are 7,000 around this country. That number shocked me. The for-profit school industry generated about $17 billion in revenue in the 2015-2016 academic year. And it's kind of been all over the place since then for a multitude of reasons. 2020 is obviously like not a good year to look at anyone's school enrollment. But even the preceding years, more and more students were opting to not go to these schools. 
In that same time period, this sector, this for-profit school industry sector, took in about 15% of the government's financial aid funding, which is a lot. I mean, education is a big business, but that 15% seems way, way higher than their penetration, meaning the amount of students they're actually educating in comparison to all students being educated, if that makes sense. When government loans would run out for these students, they were pushed into taking on high-interest, highly predatory private loans. And this is a recurring story. The number of coworkers I've had over the years who were like hiding from debt collectors who were trying to collect $80,000 from them from their fashion school degree, I mean, it's terrifying. I've known people who have had to declare bankruptcy over this who were like 28 years old. Another student from the same CNBC article who has $80,000 alone said, I think schools like that prey on the fact that a lot of people don't get guidance about going to college. They just do what they need to do to get their degree. In 2012, the Senate conducted an investigation into the for-profit school industry, and they found that EDMC employed almost five times as many recruiters as it did all the other student service staff, which says something about the corruption of this company, right? It was more about getting people in the door, less about what happens when they're there, right? The parent company, EDMC, remains mired to this day in all kinds of lawsuits regarding this predatory behavior, missing government money, lack of job placement, and students who were just plain unable to access their degrees. Eventually, most of the locations, remember there were 50 at its peak, they closed their doors and a few were purchased by other organizations. Students who attended in the era of that bankruptcy are eligible for student loan forgiveness thanks to an Obama-era policy designed to protect these students. But there's always a catch, right? Betsy DeVos and her Department of Education and the Trump administration have been trying to stop this. And in fact, so many students have come forward, these like former students of places like the art institutes. And they've said like, listen, the administration is favoring, like overtly favoring these corporate educational institutions over the actual students they're supposed to be protecting. And I mean, there's been documentation of memos going around the Department of Education saying like, listen, don't even look into any of these student complaints. Just continue on with the status quo. I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that greed and capitalism are now ruining education too. So this will be the first part of my conversation with Gabriella. The longer part of it will be in the next episode where we'll talk about pay up and what she sees as the future of the fashion industry for her and her peers. It's going to be awesome. Today, I'm going to be joined by Gabriela Antonas, who is a designer and a self-described one-woman band. <laughs> uh, Gabriela, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. I like to say that I'm a trained visual artist as well as a fashion designer because if I didn't, if I wasn't immersed in the arts, I would have never come to the realization that I wanted to go to fashion school. Before that, I was going to be like a visual arts teacher. In Maryland, we have Micah, 
the and it they had a program called the Young People Studio. So I started from like first grade to high school taking a different art class for everything and then went to an art magnet high school and took a different class for everything and then like entered the fashion world in college. Mm-hmm. And I recently graduated um December 2017 is when I graduated. And here we are today. (laughs) I know. I mean, that's like a, it's a kind of a crazy time to start a career in fashion. You know, I was reading a couple days ago that the fashion industry, like total revenue, like total sales basically is down 90% to last year, which is very, very bad. (laughs) Like that means that not only are there like not any new jobs, there are probably a lot of people losing their jobs. And it was it's one of those things that I've been trying to find statistics about online. And I just – it's like hidden, you know? Like no one's coming out and saying, hey, we laid off a bunch of our team. And I think that's disturbing actually. <laughs> but – because it's like this epidemic of fashion industry workers losing their job and no one's talking about it. They don't want us to know. I mean, because of cancel culture. I don't think they want us to know either. Yeah, they don't want us to know. I mean, think about what a nightmare the pay up has been for them. And I mean, some of them just choose to ignore it. But like, you know, they're just turning a blind eye. Thinking about how they don't want us to know how many fashion people have lost their jobs. I, you know, I got laid off in July. I got laid off a week before everybody else because my boss wanted to go on vacation. And so I had to wait quite a while to get all my information and everything. And <laughs> Ostensibly, the reason I was losing my job is because times were really hard. The company was really struggling. And it it made sense to me, right? Because I knew, like, who was buying clothes, right? Uh, I worked in the industry long enough to know that that's, like, the first – that's the first thing people stop buying, you know? Mm. So I knew that times were probably hard. And a week after I got laid off, the company I worked for, like a large corporation, there were, like, a million articles all over the internet about how they had – they had turned a surprise $34 million profit for that quarter. Barf. I know, I know. And I think that's really important to call out for people who don't work in that industry or it's because this isn't something that just happens in fashion either. I mean, this happens in all large corporate environments, especially when you're dealing with a publicly traded company. So when like a small business or a restaurant lays people off, it's because literally they cannot afford to pay them, right? It's like, there's not enough money coming in to even write a paycheck. But when a large corporation, like a publicly traded one, lays you off, it's generally not because they're running out of money. It's because they don't want to disappoint shareholders and they want to keep their stock price high. And so they're cutting expenses that they technically could pay. And I think that's a that's a big difference. I think that's really important to say that that is why people who worked in larger corporate environments lost their jobs earlier in the pandemic. Now, of course, who knows what's going to happen in January when we get to the end of the fiscal year and all of these companies are seeing that their sales are down 90% or something. I mean, I I feel like there's going to be like a weird fashion industry like bloodbath at the end of January. <laughs> it's it's going to be deeper cuts then, I think. I, I think what we learned from previous episodes is what you said about the people running it that it's about them projecting larger sales. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it would be great if these companies just didn't make more stuff than we actually need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead of just worried about worrying about dividends for the shareholders, I mean, but 
not every boss is going to be a good boss. No, (laughs) they're not all going to be run where they're taking care of their employees or even caring about people sewing it or even the people that like are just slightly related. Like, like we always use the button factory example, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but all is one, Uh, like everything matters and it's all connected. Totally. Totally. I mean, I think what I would love to see in my dream world is like a big chart and it would show all of the companies that had refused to pay up or were heavily discounting stuff, which we're going to get to later, and how many people they had laid off early in the pandemic and now, and also which of them are kind of trying to get out of uh, covering any COVID illnesses in the workplace. Like, because those are all these things that are happening right now, and it seems like it's a lot of the same companies that are doing it. You know what I mean? Like all the bad behavior goes together. Either you're a company that doesn't care about any of your workers or you're a good company. It's like there's no middle ground, I I feel like. So that's very black and white. I'm not normally very black and white about things, but like that's it's just the <laughs> pattern that I'm seeing right now. <laughs> with, with fashion, it's true though. It's true. It's true. So, I would love to see a graph, like a, like a flow chart of that, of – of seeing <laughs> everything I would I would love it to be public. I know, I know. Unfortunately, this is also hidden intentionally. I mean, I think that's something we talk about in all the episodes is that you don't know this stuff is happening for a good reason. You know? So, you went to fashion school and we were kind of talking about, you know, fashion school is really expensive. Do you know how much roughly and do you mind saying how much you think you spend on fashion school? I don't mind saying at all. I I don't have a figure for like what I spent on fabric and books and stuff like that. But what my student loan debt is, is about 65,000 in federal loans, which is unsubsidized and subsidized and about 29. It it was at the time it might have been like 34 in um, private loans and paid it down to 29. But I stopped paying like right before I graduated. And I think that my private debt has disappeared because of the school I went to. Um, and the, you know, Obama said we didn't have to pay the Art Institute people. It's it's on the U.S. Attorney General website for the United States. Oh, yeah, that's right. Can you kind of explain what happened there that sort of led to you not having to owe that money anymore? They were a group of schools owned by EDMC, I believe it's called. And there was an art institute in almost every major city, but I started at the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale and finished at the Art Institute of Philadelphia. And the reason why we shouldn't have to pay that money is because they used quote unquote boiler room tactics and just like, like a lot of marketing pressure to obviously trick the the parents as well as the students to to bringing them in by making promises like you know we help you find a job like career services and i mean you know when you graduate and they have programs that they didn't have like study abroad like that was like something i really wanted to do i probably wouldn't have gone there if i um had realized that that was just a farce and so uh yeah because of that <laughs> they said we didn't we didn't have to because a lot of the numbers that they were using for like job placement included numbers where the alumni 
might not have even been working in the fashion industry or, or whatever industry, because they had more than just fashion. They had culinary, um, graphic design. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. I actually, so that kind of segues into some of the research I'd done. I read this article called, Is Fashion Education Selling a False Dream? It's already like pretty, pretty dark. Mm. Uh, basically, yeah. a, a huge survey happened a couple years ago that surveyed um, design students all over the world. In, I mean, in schools in Tokyo, in the UK, in the United States, every continent. And basically, the students all agreed that they were pretty happy with the education aspect of it in terms of like what they learned. Although some people, and this is from some other reading I've done too, totally called out that there was very little training in designing for larger sizes. And there was also not enough business education. Like if you wanted to start your own brand, how you would do that and how you would kind of like, I don't know, just operate professionally. And I do remember when I was talking to Selena Sanders way back in her episodes, she kind of called out the same thing, that they weren't really preparing designers to actually go out and work in the industry. What? So I don't – did you did you feel that? Did you feel like you got a lot of business education? Um, I 1,000% agree with, with what you were saying and Selena. Um, it seemed like when you were talking to Claire that she – maybe did have a little more of those classes that showed you about the actual business running, but, but no, my school did not. I really, that's one of the things I, you know, just realized from catching up on all of your episodes is that why the heck didn't they have a plus size class? And, and aside from like, I get that that is a big thing to tackle because the industry wants to like be fat phobic and just ignore these people. But like even simple things like actually in the factory, like the machine that, well, because some factories use like lasers to cut out the pattern pieces, but for mm -hmm. the old school ones, like the factories that I've been, they have the, the knife, the cutting knife. That's like, that cuts it. That's a machine. And it's like, I should have been, I should have come out being an expert at that, you know? Um, totally. And then there's other like programs that maybe weren't like big conglomerates. Like my school was that like um, here, Micah, even though I love Micah, that has like fiber as art. And like, I know that they didn't even teach their students how to like thread the serger machine until their junior year. And for like the layman, like the serger is on everything. It's what keeps the clothes from falling apart. It's, it has like four threads, sometimes five. And I mean, it's in knits, it's in wovens. You'd think that that was day one for me the serger mm -hmm. and the normal straight stitch we learned in intro right away. Fashion school can range. I looked I tried to look up the tuition range and I got the craziest broad uh spectrum. It could be $4,000 a year and that would be like a community college to $50,000 a year. And if you're paying on that higher end there and you're not learning all of these things, it just feels like a rip off. It is. <laughs> so what was what all of these students had in common, no matter what school they went to, what country, they felt very abandoned when they graduated because there was very little support after that in terms of finding a job, you know, any other like professional development or mentoring. Beyond that, it was just like, okay, bye. And this article had an interesting quote. Uh, I don't know how I, I'm interested to hear what you think of this. The underlying root cause of this global fashion education issue may be something experts have dubbed 
the project runway effect. While many young people are attracted to working as fashion designers due to the growing visibility of the industry on television and social media, the growing popularity of fashion education has not been matched by a corresponding increase in fashion design jobs. <laughs> Which seems, you know, it seems fair to me because I I dug a little bit deeper into this and basically based on graduation trends, now everything I'm going to talk about now would be pre-2020 because I don't know who's going to school. I don't know who's finishing school. I could say that there's definitely no new jobs for sure, right? Uh, pre-2020, each year, the U.S. fashion workforce, just the U.S. alone, would need to create roughly 2,000 new design jobs to accommodate the people who graduated that year. And that would be just each year on top of what was already there. And as it stands right now, pre-COVID, there were only between seventeen to 20,000 design jobs in the whole United States. So that would be like you would just be doubling the number of people working as fashion designers over 10 years. It's just not feasible, right? In the UK, it's a similar situation. 85% of graduates will find some kind of job in fashion, but very few will actually be designing on any level. Yes. Okay. So I just, just to start with the last thing, the actual designing is a very small part of it. The mm-hmm. fashion designer, like in, at least in my school, we were made aware that like, we are going to have to wear a lot of hats. I know that mm-hmm. you have worked in startups and you have to, it's not just designing and picking out beautiful swatches. That's probably only 10% of like running an actual business. And if you're in a smaller place, you're going to have to do more other stuff in your workload. But I do agree with the project runway quote from that article, but I wouldn't blame it totally on project runway. Um, Mm -hmm. even though I don't, I don't watch the, that show feverishly. Um, that was something that I've always encountered of, of people either from where I'm from or in other places that I've lived in other States too, that they're just like, why don't you go on project runway? And it's just kind of the same thing. Um, I don't know if it's because Kristen Siriano is from Maryland, like I am, and maybe that they're just like, oh, a local person made it. I don't know if that's what it is, but I kind of think it's the same thing as when they would be like, why don't you go to FIT? And it's like, are you going to pay for FIT for me? Uh, like, like so much more than what I paid. Or um, I've worked with people um, in factories here in Baltimore that went to like the big fashion school in London. I can't even remember. But it's very prestigious. Mm-hmm. I was reading about it today, and I can't remember the name either, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think that the solution, I mean, for all these design jobs would be like the, ho- the home ec thing, that, that whole aspect of it. Like if more people, if we could, you know, cook for ourselves and mend our own clothes, I mean, people would have the sense of like how long it takes to actually make something. And then they'll realize mm-hmm. that their $5 t-shirt is extremely unethical. I yeah, I think yeah. That that's what it is. We have, we can go back to more education for sewing. Like it, it doesn't have to be a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I think our economy is sort of built on this house of cards because Nobody knows how to do anything for themselves, but we do know that we want everything to be cheap. And so all of these companies have swooped in to serve that for us. I mean, I was even thinking today about all 
of the like highly predatory like food delivery services that like totally shaft the delivery people and the restaurants. I was thinking about that today and I was like, you know, people know that, but they still use these services because they can't cook their own food. And furthermore, they've been working for a long time for drones to actually take those jobs away from real people. Like, yes, there'll have to be people that drive the the drones or whatever, but they are working on cutting people out of that job also that there are that they're already paying like crap. I mean, that could be a whole podcast about talking about like the Lyft and the Uber and, and the gig workers that are like essential workers, like Instacart people that don't have benefits or hazard pay. I mean, it's it's evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that you wish you had learned in school that you didn't? Um, definitely the plus size class would be my number one. And in general, I see the glass half full and I'm taking good things from it. But I didn't get to master the setting up of the machines that do knits. Um, mm-hmm. I only have one video of them showing us how to set it up. And, and nowadays, like, I mean, people wear a lot of stretch and that would have been great to just have mastered it just the same way I mastered the serger and stuff. But it is on YouTube. It is possible. I mean, people are educating themselves that way, even if they have that dream of starting their own fashion line and can't necessarily afford school. Like it, there's there's a lot of sewing videos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it, that's a really good point not to devalue education or anything (laughs) yeah not that you're gonna get the best outcome like something I'll never forget one of my professors said was that you don't want it to look like loving hands made at home basically like what (laughs) what you're doing in class and yeah that's what you might get if if that's all you have is YouTube but I knew that career services wouldn't be helping me get a job I knew that (laughs) Like my internships, I actually got a good mentor out of them and was able to go on to do um, like amazing things, like have my stuff on the runway at New York Fashion Week. It was all through the place that I did both my internships at, which is Anna Ono Intimates, which Mm -hmm. is in Philadelphia. But we will get into that. (laughs) I talked about how a lot of people leave school and they feel really let down in terms of you know, the support after that, like, how has your experience been? I did. I did feel that right away. Um, partially, I mean, cause it was all happening in real time. The actual shutdown of the art institutes, they had to first, um, sell it to be a nonprofit and then shut everything down. So like I literally made through, made it through and graduated, like while the garage door was closing, we felt like we were like sliding in oh, underneath wow. of it. Like, like, sh- like, I said I graduated December 2017 and I was um I was working on the second year of fashion week at the time and for Anna Ono and I knew I was planning to move back to Baltimore that's where I'm from to mm-hmm. take care of my grandfather so I knew that I was willingly making the decision to leave a state that might have been better for my fashion career than coming back to Baltimore where like the only thing here is like under armor which is also evil um and <laughs> and you know the little industry that's left but there i i was able to find a surprising amount of things going on here like makers mm-hmm. and and made in baltimore and stuff and and some old school people set in the race i mean baltimore is pretty cool 
I know a lot of our listeners are not from the East Coast, but <laughs> Baltimore is cooler than you think it's going to be. I'll say that. I've had some really amazing experiences there and met some incredibly creative people. Yeah, we need your tourism for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also- Don't forget, more people are um, moving out than are coming in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's everywhere, right? Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you've been doing since you finished school? So wait, before you say that, though, wasn't there a situation with your diploma? Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I remember you telling me this when we were pre-gaming, and I was like, what the fuck? This is so, so like... Ill, like unethical, illegal. Imagine, I mean, you talked about, you basically spent $100,000 in school. So I just want to remind everybody of that before you tell us about your diploma. Okay, carry on. Yeah, so graduation, the, um, you know, they give you, if you haven't paid up yet, they don't give it to you basically. So graduation, they give you the little case that it will be in when you get it, but it's just empty. And, you know, I still got, I still won awards and other things that day. It wasn't totally empty, but yeah, I didn't receive the actual copy until this year. And the only reason why I got it is because my, um, one of my other friends that was in the same program found on the website that you can go buy a copy of it, just like a transcript. And they send you the PDF in like 10 minutes. Like they don't even mail you like a real one. Like I want to put mine in the frame. Like I sh- like, I shouldn't have to go print it out and do it myself. But yes, my family would clown me about that. Like my mom, like you don't even have your diploma. Like she couldn't believe it. Like I can't believe that they're getting away with it, but <laughs> I mean, she's just a judgy. I don't know to talk to her. She's, she's a brainwashed Trump supporter. God. So what did you do next? Let me just backtrack a little bit of, of, of me saying that I did get to make the most of it. There was a really cool guy named Emil Dijon who was like an old head that he had pictures of everyone on the walls through him. Like he, like this guy really did make it worth it. That and meeting Dana of Anna Ono. He orchestrated students if he thought you like had the stuff and were professional he wasn't just sending anyone anyone but I got to go to West Gordon in New York and assist in the studio and then assist in the actual show and it was the last year that it was still called Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week oh right I forgot about that change yeah 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 and he's a part of the CFDA and so he's like he was really cool and now he designs for Carolina Herrera but yeah like I got to like more than just an intern, they let me like actually cut out the fabric like on my first day. And then he liked me so much that he paid for my bus ticket to come back the next day. And that's where I made eye contact with Solange. (laughs) (laughs) She was there. And I like, if you Google Wes Gordon, like Solange fashion week, like the, the outfit she's wearing, like it just burned into my head. I will never forget it. And then the next thing Emil sent me to do was I dressed the models at Oscar de la Renta every buyer's week for two years. Wow. That's very cool. You were a buyer. So, you know, like the different weeks, like how the calendar works and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah, that was great. And, you know, just getting to see the clothes that you would never see, look on the inside and see like how it's made. And then the models love me because I was so fast getting them in and out. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was it was amazing. Okay, so fast forward to what I did after we we covered me not getting my diploma. But um it I did feel a huge sense of accomplishment when I finally did get to see my name you know 2 <laughs> years later even though even though I've been graduated while in school like I said like with my internships and meeting 
Dana Donafree of Anna Ono, I was able to be a part of her shows that she did for New York Fashion Week. Mm-hmm. So that started in 2016, like making it. So the first show was February 2017. There's there's more than one Fashion Week. There's one in the fall and there's like one in February. And so it was always the one in February that we did. And we were partnered with Art Heart Fashion. He does a lot of fashion shows like in LA and globally too. And Anna Ono's for breast cancer survivors. And and she is that like she filled a hole in this market like before it was all old lady bras. So I I definitely am the only one, at least from the Art Institute of Philadelphia, that was able to have my stuff on the runway at New York Fashion Week like before even graduating. So yeah, I've done that the last four Februarys. I mean, I think at to, to only be out of school for a few years too. I mean, you've heard other people like their paths are you know, often it's like to hopefully go into a big corporate environment and be like a design assistant. You know, did did that kind of path ever appeal to you? <sighs> to be honest, um no. I I love New York. I always have loved New York. Um, but I never wanted to be a little fish in a huge pond. Mm-hmm. Um, You're Leo. I know. You told me. <laughs> so it makes sense. <laughs> yes. And yes. And so are you. And I love that you are. And New York is like, yes, you make more money, but it's because the cost of living is more. And then also like you have to keep up with the Joneses. Like the sidewalk is the runway. Mm-hmm. Like street style is a big deal. And just like... You, you know, it, you're also competing for more of the jobs. If everyone is going to New York and L.A., like, you know, I just wanted to always love New York and not grow to hate it. And so, like, whenever I would do Fashion Week or Oscar de la Renta or whatever, my cousin, who's my best friend, like, lived in Brooklyn. So I would have somewhere to stay. You know what I mean? I got the best parts of it without yeah, having to be broke. Yeah. And, I mean, but now with Corona, that time's over. Like, my cousin now lives in L.A., which would be great to, for me to explore the fashion that L.A. has to offer, too. I could see you actually really liking L.A. I don't know. I mean, the jobs there are a lot different, for sure. Uh, there's a lot more fast fashion there. But uh, I also feel like there's this, like, developing scene of, like, very, very cool designers and, like, small brands. Yeah, I – hate fast fashion i hate dove charney and <laughs> and i can't believe that he's getting away with it oh my god i know i know you know he also got a big contract from i want to say the air pandemic yeah but it was like the u.s air force or something and some some sort of government contract that's like millions of dollars and it was supposed to be for a minority owned business so please explain to me how he got that um, he can just like talk his way into anything, I guess. I, I worked for a, a factory here in Baltimore that got a government contract as well for like 10,000 pieces. And so like he he definitely got a couple thousand off of that. I mean, if he was making more than 10,000 pieces, then God, he got that money and the money from the pandemic assistance, like and mm-hmm. pay, paying mm-hmm. people a few dollars an hour. Like this paying by the piece thing has to stop. Like why? I think he pays people like a decent wage, but he also was exposing people to COVID. Like he basically, uh, what happened is, I don't think I've told the story like fully on the podcast, so this will be maybe news for some people. So he, uh, yeah, tea. So, (laughs) but like from the from the hot hottest tea from the LA County Department of Health, I like read 
all of their um, documentation of it. It was really more disturbing than I thought it was. So basically there was like a doctor or a clinic that was seeing a lot of garment workers coming in and testing positive for COVID. And they were able to put two and two together and realize that they all worked at LA Apparel, Dove Charney's factory. And so the doctor reached out to the Department of Health and was like, listen, there's something going on here. We've seen a lot of cases. Uh, so the Department of Health reached out and asked him for a full list of employees, which he wouldn't provide. Of course. Uh, but based on what I know, based on what they had seen already from pulling together like medical records, there were, I want to say they thought there were either like 140 or 180 cases from that factory. And they said, okay, well, we're going to come in and inspect you. And he wouldn't let them in, which is crazy. Well, if he had cardboard up as barriers. Yes. They they get in there. You know, the policy is that, you know, there needs to be plexiglass between the workstations. They're using cardboard boxes. I saw photos of it. I want to say in the LA times, it was not even like, I mean, not that cardboard's not going to work anyway. Right. But it wasn't even like fully blocking one station from the next. You know, it was like maybe you would only be able to see someone from the eyes up if you looked over while you were sitting at your station. I mean, it was ridiculous. You know, people weren't wearing masks unless they had brought their own. You know, there wasn't like there wasn't like hand sanitizing station. People weren't uh, like, you know, distanced, socially distanced. And so the city's like, okay, this place is shut down until you get it back in check. And once again, they're like, give us a full list of all your employees. They didn't, which to me says there are undocumented workers there and he knows it. That's my um, guess. Of course. Because that's, that's generally – in other cases that I've read about, when the f- factory owner, the employer, is unwilling to provide a full list of the employees, that's generally what it means, or that people are being paid in a shady way. I guess it could be an and or, actually. So anyway, they still are able to put together at that point that 300 employees have tested positive for COVID at that point. And, and I just say- the documented ones. Right, right. And that's like from their lists that they were able to get. And four people had died. So, you know, they closed down the factory and they tell Dove, like, listen, people can come back to work who tested positive before this certain date if they've been fever-free for several days. But you can't bring the people back in until then. And you cannot hire new people and bring them into this situation to work around other workers that haven't tested positive yet, but have worked alongside people who have. It makes sense, right? So he's kind of like got some big contract. Maybe it's this huge government contract. I have no idea. Maybe it's stuff he's selling for everybody world. But he he can't he can't wait. He can't like slow down capacity just because these people can't come back to work because they're not fever free yet. So what does he do? He hires new people. And the Department of Health gets gets wind of this and they come in and shut him down again. Yeah, I think you did it, mention that. I yeah, I yeah. can't remember enough. It's probably good to refresh everyone's yes. memory. I mean, it's it's like and he then, meanwhile, was on social media being like, No, we've led the industry in terms of protecting garment workers. And it was all this just like nonsense. Like, here's what we did. We led we led the industry in offering hand sanitizer and stuff. And you're like, no. Absolutely no. not. Especially in that's where they're making lying. masks too. I I know, I know. I'm like, either you're lying or the Department of Health is lying. Who do you think I'm going to believe? Because you're like a known scumbag. Just for the me too <laughs> aspect of it all. Like what it's, what is with the photographers? Like, like Terry oh. Richardson was kind of like that. And just like, it, it you know, doesn't, you know, what was fascinating, what was fascinating to me is 
I was looking at the LA Apparel Instagram and people fucking love him still. And I was talking about that with my husband. Well, I was also talking about it with another friend of mine, Salisha, who was like, yeah, like when you talk to like t-shirt people, like they still like everybody really looks to him as like a role model or something like a hero. And I was talking to my husband about it and he's like, I just think it's because, you know, you notice it's all men that you're talking about. Like they just don't get it. They don't care because it hasn't affected them. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Def Tiny still sucks. Please don't buy things from LA Apparel. I would also say don't buy things from Everybody World because they're made in LA Apparel factories. Any woman-owned company that is partnering with Dove Charney, that's that's not good. That's not okay with me. I know that was sort of an abrupt ending for this conversation, but that's just kind of how it worked out, you know, because I wanted to split it into sections that made sense. And you know what? This is a radio lab, okay? Gabriella will be back for the next episode on Sunday. And in the meantime, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Okay, last but not least, in this supersize episode, yes, there's more, a conversation with Meredith. She called in for the last episode to share her thoughts on fashion school, so we decided to have a longer follow-up combo, and as always, it was a delight. Meredith called and, you know, left out a series of messages that I successfully blended into one about fashion school. So I sent Meredith a bunch of articles that I've been using for a bunch of research I've been doing for Clothes Horse, and we're going to talk about her insight as both a design professional and a person who's also been an instructor. So, I mean, I don't know. What stood out to you, Meredith? What do you want to talk about? There were a lot of things. I I have a small notebook here. (laughs) Um, Awesome. (laughs) My homework. Um, One thing that I, that stuck out to me kind of in the beginning of the article was this quote um, from a, a former Parsons student and it said, Parsons tested my work ethic, exposed me, and exposed me to a diverse student body and resources, but poorly prepared students for the realities of job placement and career development. And the reason why that really stuck out to me is I can absolutely agree that from my experience as a fashion student, that was one big piece that was missing. Even though we had a class in our senior year called professional practices, right? And that was, <laughs> uh, presentations, resume, interviews, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was kind of funny because they required you to wear like suits or what? business <laughs> when you were giving presentations in this class. And I have never ever worn a suit or anything of the like in an interview for a fashion company like yeah me neither in fact if I had to I would have to skip the interview because I wouldn't have anything to wear I only because I worked at Express for so long but um (laughs) yeah it, it that to me always like made me scratch my head because like where was where was part of that class that talked about negotiating salary? Like that uh, is like, I, of course I had some interview tips here and there from this class, but when I finally got my first job offer, I screwed it up royally when it came to pay. 
and no one taught me how to negotiate for salary. It was something that I had to learn over the years and, and learn the hard way. So mm-hmm. with that, um, mm-hmm. I could definitely see where that would be something that was, was missing as well as like, like personal development, like how to make a plan with your manager for growth. Um, you know, how to attack um, constructive criticism. All of these things, just workplace um, etiquette and navigating personalities within the office, like that could be a course in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, just having something like that, I think, would be so helpful to prepare you for, like, the mental challenge of getting a job. Not only is it, like, arduous just finding something, obviously, but it's also – you know, how do you navigate that process as well as once you get the job, how do you set yourself up for success? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a need for that for everyone. Like, it's not even just fashion school that's missing the boat there because I certainly didn't learn that stuff in school, and I can tell no one else has either. And some of this training you can get on the job, you know, depending on who your employer is. Like, I feel like at Mod Class, they did a lot of workshops around, like, being a better manager and, working with different types of people and at other jobs I've had to take like weird personality quizzes like you're a purple or whatever you know like that kind of stuff but I'll tell you what no job ever teaches you how to do for obvious reasons how to negotiate a salary and understand your worth no one teaches you that like if you have parents who teach you that stuff then well I'm jealous because I certainly never learned that from my parents but it's so it's just missing so much and I think also just Knowing how to advocate for yourself, not even when it comes to salary, but getting your ideas heard and, like, managing up, and you just don't get that training ever, and I don't think it's intuitive at all. No. No, definitely not. Definitely not when it comes to money, for sure. I mean, sometimes people are better leaders than others or or managers, and you definitely learn that along the way, but, you know, I... I'm someone who was fortunate to have my dad who navigated the the corporate world for many, many, many years, but a lot of his experience and advice he would give wouldn't apply to me, not only because it was somewhat antiquated, but just being in the fashion industry alone is just different. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. You know? Like, I always remember him telling me, like, you need to be conservative when you give salary. You don't want to be turned down for a job because of it. And I think both me and my sister have, like, PTSD because of it. Um, Because, you know, you're always just like, I have that in the back of my mind. Like, well, if I say that, are they just going to turn me down? Um, And that's never really been the case. I have overshot salary-wise multiple times. (laughs) But they've never turned me down because of it. So, you know, I think just that little tidbit of information would have been super helpful. I agree. I agree. I have been given the same advice by my mom that like, I should not, I should under ask. And I'm like, you know what that ends up happening? I get underpaid. (laughs) Like it doesn't. (laughs) My first full-time job was with BB. Um, I wasn't there very long. I only lasted six weeks. But uh, I, like, a really low, I like, I just didn't know what I was talking about at all. And I remember the first paycheck I got, and I was like, uh, what? Like, I'm supposed to live off of this? Like, it, I was so screwed because 
I was just like, well, that sounds like enough, you know? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I've definitely, I've definitely been there. And there were times where I was just like, I think back, you know, my career really got rolling in the midst of the recession and I was constantly underselling myself because I was so desperate to have a job, you know, and yeah. I, I worry because now we're, we were talking about this before we started recording, like we're going into an even, well, we are in it, an even crazier recession where there are, I was saying that for the people who currently don't have a job in the United States, this actually, the percentage I told you may have decreased as well, because I think in December alone, close to like 2 million people have lost their jobs so far, but there are only enough jobs out there for a quarter of the people who are unemployed right now. And those jobs are nebulous. Like they're like, ah, part-time Amazon warehouse worker, you know? So you know? I I worry about people underselling themselves. Yeah, after no, this. For, for sure. I mean, I think people already, uh, you know, I know plenty of people that would get passed up for jobs before this happened for being overqualified. Mm-hmm. Um, now it just happens all the time. So it's really going to put a ton of people at a disadvantage. And I, I would like to be more positive here, but I really don't know what to do about it. Like, I don't. I don't know how we turn this around. I don't either. I think everybody needs to go start a new company that somehow is really successful and can <laughs> hire everyone. That's what, yeah. we, that's what we all need to do. <laughs> what else stood out to you from the reading or concerned you or just you want to highlight? I, I thought it was really interesting how they brought up social media and how that's changed um, the interest and increase the interest. Oh, yeah. In, Didn't they call it the Project Runway effect or something like that? Yeah. Which I think is funny because, honestly, Project Runway came out when I was in high school, and it really made me not want to be a designer. I know. Like, I know. I totally 100% agree. There's nothing about Project Runway that makes me think it's super fun and chill to be a designer. Absolutely not. So it's actually like the most real-world reality show that's out there because if you are – designing a line like and you're an independent designer you want to show it in your fashion week like that's what your your days weeks months are like so it's actually pretty accurate but um you know back in the day when you were when I was looking for school so like I knew that I wanted to be in fashion for a long time um I of course had had many aspirations in between from like being a forensic scientist thanks CSI and um, a pharmacist and, like, random things. I, I came back to fashion right as I was graduating from high school. And honestly, I have to say, like, going into fashion at that time, especially, like, the thought of moving to Los Angeles, it was just as insane as me saying, I want to go be an actor. Like, <laughs> everything like, was crazy. Like, yeah. why would you do that? Like, no, everyone thought that I was going to be on the street, like I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> so all of those things, it was like had such a negative connotation, at least in my family and like the place that I grew up in. It was just like such a crazy idea to go study fashion, um, especially to go study on the other side of the country. Um, but I just think it's so interesting that now, you know, when, when I went to school, there was no real community, you know, it's, it's a two year, at the time it was a primarily two year college, um, a private college for profit, but kind of mm-hmm. set up like a school in a way, um, so that you could load up your coursework and then work during, you know, at the same time getting real world experience. 
Um, and it just, it seemed like the right thing to do, but all I had to go off of was a website, you know, and, and it was 2005. So the website was a website. It wasn't anything crazy. It looked good. Um, mm-hmm. it has like uh, eight bit photos on it. it. It actually was like a nice website, but that's all I saw. And from that, I took a, I got on a plane and visited the school mm-hmm. and that's, and then, and then I signed up and that's like pretty much sight unseen and not really knowing much about anything. I, I went to the school and there weren't many like community campus organizations. There weren't events on campus at the time. It was very like commuter based. Like there are a lot of kids that lived far away that would come into LA for two days for class and then, you know, go back to where they lived. And I was in student housing and it was like a really isolating experience because it was really hard to meet people um, Mm -hmm. for like two days a week. And you maybe had a class with the same people like twice and then you wouldn't see them again until the following week because they lived like 50 miles away. So yeah, it was a really strange um, experience, especially in like, comparison and contrast to people going to like a a university um and it was just such it was really weird on top of like moving to a big city you know two thousand miles away from my home it was it was a big shock when i got here i was like oh this is this is really different um but nowadays with the social media presence that the school has like it's incredible how much access you can get into like what it looks like to live in in housing and what mm-hmm. it was like student you know what they they'll have a student take over their stories for the day and like they'll talk about you know all this stuff and I'm like man like they're definitely selling the dream and that was one thing that they they mentioned in the article as well is that like you know fashion school kind of sells you on this glamorous lifestyle but as both you and I know it, it's not really waiting for the students at the other end of the rainbow no, no, it's definitely not. This is one thing that I thought a lot about. And, you know, most of the people that you've interviewed, they say, oh, you know, I when I got into fashion or went to school, I didn't know that this job that I ended up doing even existed. And I think most people are, you know, how is an 18-year-old supposed to know that technical design is a thing or, or mm-hmm. what it is, right? So I think what would be good especially when you go to a school, like the great thing about them is they're highly specialized. So all the specific majors really do focus in on something, but you might not always know right away what is calling you per se, you know, and so <laughs> choose a major and it's a two-year program. So, you know, you don't have much time to like alter your course um, and alter your direction without adding time on to your degree. So, it almost would be a good thing to have kind of like a general, like, this is fashion class where it's like, <laughs> these are the roles, these are the types of people, like, as you know, like, certain career areas attract certain personalities. It just is a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can easily kind of start to feel out where you belong, per se. Like, I was always nerdy. I like math, but I also love making things, sewing um, creating things. And so I knew like, mm, fashion design, probably not for me. Like 
I am creative, but I don't think that I am like a designer, especially after watching Project One Way. I was like, mm, I don't <laughs> for me. So I was like in crisis mode when I went to fashion school. I was like, well, if I'm not a fashion designer. What do I do? Right. Um, and that's why they're like, oh, product development's a good, you know, middle of the road place to be. But you know, I, and I said okay, and and it ended up working out. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I found out about technical design kind of in my second to last quarter of my first degree and was like, oh, okay, this is like, I can be nerdy, I can be analytical, problem solving, and I'm also, you know, doing pattern making, um, all of these things that I really like, but also still relating to fashion, like, this is great, but it Mm -hmm. took so long to get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that that's like kind of a whole with fashion education, like, it's great that FITM is so specialized, but it's also hard to figure out what you want to specialize in, um, as well as, like, there are classes that interested me from other majors, but because it wasn't a part of my major, like, I didn't get to take them. So, I, like, if I were to start a fashion school today, I would make it more holistic, you know, almost like Montessori type thing. Like, what interests you? Like, take some classes in that, feel it out. Um, you know, maybe build your own independent study degree where you might have multiple fields of interest and you might want to do, you know, two things at the same time. Like, art school is art school, so let people be artsy, you know, mm-hmm, and, and be creative and have that space. Um, I think that would be really beneficial for everybody. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's almost like, I, I don't know. It's sort of like people are graduating from school with only part of the education. It seems like the expectation is that, like, don't worry, you'll learn everything else when you get a job. But yeah. my concern is that in this new world where so many people have lost their jobs in fashion, that it seems like they're are not going they're not going to come back. Uh, are employers going to be interested in teaching someone all that stuff on the job? It would right. probably set the students up for success to already have learned that. Yes, I, well, I mean, I don't know if you found this out when you have changed maybe categories of what you've bought, but I know within technical design, like if you are a women's wear technical designer and then all of a sudden you want to take a job in denim, they're going to say, oh, well, you don't have any denim experience. So even though you know how to do design, it's like you're not specialized in the specialized, specialized fields that this job is in. So I think that more comes from the employer side, honestly, of like being a little bit more open to mm-hmm. people necessarily fit the bill up and down, right and left. Um, and you know, like taking into consideration, does this person want to learn? Uh, do they have the skills? You know, would they be a good fit for this job? Not like, oh, they can't check every single box. So I don't even want to consider them. Yeah, no, that is so common in terms of buying merchandising as well, where it's like, do you have denim experience? And it's like, well, I have this much. And, like, that's not enough. Yeah. Even though I'm like, well, look at all the other things I have built in my career in terms of a yeah. business. I didn't know any of those businesses when I started. Probably could pick up on denim pretty fast, right? And yeah. I do think there's just so much, like, focus on finding this ideal candidate that will just come into work, turn their computer on, and mm-hmm. do it all. But it's like, no matter what, there's going to be stuff to learn. 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I think fashion gets very specific that way. And I, you know, we've had people on the show who are like, all I can do is design denim. I've never been able to design anything else, or I've only been able to design sweaters. Like that's what I do. And now I'm pigeonholed in that, you know, much in the same way where it's like, oh, you work in fast fashion. Okay. Well then you can't work in like nice fashion or vice yep. versa, you know? Yep. Anytime I see a job lead for like the luxury market, they're like, must have three to five years experience in luxury apparel. And it's like, it's, it, yeah, that's a, it's a real thing for sure. So oh, totally. on the education end, I think, you know, having, having a well-rounded foundation, I think is most important. And that's one thing, like, as I've, I've been in a almost completely different field within fashion this past year, I've actually drawn on concepts that I learned 15 years ago in college and just understanding of like, oh, yeah, that's that thing that we talked about. You know, and I don't have a great memory, (laughs) but, you know, there are certain things where you're like, oh, okay, like just really having a basic understanding of not only how your field or your, your designated specialization um, functions, but like, what are the functions of the other departments? You know, like, I've definitely been at jobs where I'm like, I don't know what these people do, right? But like, <laughs> if you're the same people, you should at least have a general understanding of the functions of every department because a lot of positions, like buying, like design, like um, technical design, are you you collaborate cross functionally constantly. So it's such an important thing, and I think just giving students that foundation of like, this is what fashion is. This is kind of how it works. And then also preparing them on the other end, like we were talking about for actually getting a job. And once they're in the job, how to, what are best practices? Um, I think that's the best way to prepare students for the future because, you know, they could want to be in denim, but then who knows, there might be a cotton shortage and we're all not wearing jeans in five years. Like it, it, it changes day mm-hmm. by day. And mm-hmm. the, the fact that it's just so reactive to anything that happens in the world. Oh that, yeah. It, it's it, anything. You have to be prepared for anything. So it's true. It's true. I do feel like everything that, that like you left, you said something interesting in your message, uh, which was in, you know, the Sunday episode where you said that like fashion school is always sort of behind what the like social trend is. And I feel like fashion itself, while in terms of social trends, they might be behind sometimes, they're incredibly reactive to anything else before, like, before anybody else. So it's like, uh, well, denim sales were down this week. We better just cancel all the denim and go into leggings. You know, it's always, like, so extreme and reactive. Like, fashion industry was, like, laying off people before anyone else because they were like, this is coming. This is bad. I mean, even you know, when I still had a job, we were canceling orders like two weeks before the first stay at home order because we were like, this is, yeah, yeah, we got, we, you know, we can't hesitate. Yeah. It, um, I think one of the classes, like I was, of course, like the big nerd on campus and I liked all the classes <laughs> that I hated. Um, one of those classes was like um, supply chain and logistics. But we also, in that class, focused on current events and, like, how those things impacted um, the fashion business. And I 
found that to be incredibly interesting because I was definitely always someone who had their finger on the news, although nowadays it's a, I'm a, a lot more disconnected from all that than I would like <laughs> to be. Um, but it, it's so helpful to see how, like, global events can highly impact you having a job. <laughs> yeah. We see sometimes yeah. it's not as blatant, you know. It could be, you know, a war in Turkey that, you know, maybe we're not getting all the cotton out of that region anymore because there's something going on or, you know, an earthquake that uh, destroys a road that, you know, goods can't get shipped out of a certain region. Like, there's so many things that have um, great weight on the fashion business. Yeah, it's it's totally true. It's I think everybody thinks you're just over there shopping and having a, a good time, but it's so much more than that. <laughs> yeah. it's like, um, after, because I, you know, I did two different associates programs, and when you're in the first program, um, there's a big drop off after you're, you complete your first year because. I think at that point, once you've done, like, color theory and, like, creative writing and, you know, college math and you actually start getting into the nitty-gritty and, like, doing, like, crazy projects and all that stuff, people are like, oh, wait, like, I shouldn't have gone here just because I like to shop, you know? Like, there were <laughs> yeah. Like, I need to go to college. And my dad knows I like shopping and, like, we have, like, a lot of money. So, like, I figured I'd go here and then, like, they would have their first real course and be like, uh-oh, and then they drop out. Like, people drop out all the time when they got to the hard stuff and realized, like, oh, this is this is actually a design school, and I need to, like, be on it, and I, I might be pulling all-nighters, putting projects together, but, like, this is, like, that I think, like, the second degree program that I did um, was international manufacturing, and it was a nine-month program. So it was very, very intensive um, and crazy, and I think that that was the first, like, pseudo breakdown that I've had, and it definitely prepared me for all the future breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, of course, you're like, why am I doing this? Like, yeah, I'm learning things, but did I really need to do this? Maybe I could have just gone and worked. And then, like, many years later, I can look back and I say, oh, this was totally worth it because it was the first like pressure cooker I was in, but it was a safe one. It was a safe pressure cooker because I was in school and I couldn't get fired, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. You know, I think that fashion school, especially that degree program prepared me for the chaos that was waiting for me on the other end. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, all the all nighters and all the nail biters and the crying and the, it's just crazy deadlines and then doing all that work and then having to undo it all and start all over. Like, this is what you learn then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, skills that you can regurgitate on a test. It's also like the soft skills mm-hmm. that you learn. And mm-hmm. I think there's also a really big opportunity to start teaching leadership, not only for people that are in like the fashion business degree, but anybody who is about to get into the workforce, like taking a leadership course or like management 101, even oh. though you might all of the concepts, like you'll use them later. And I think that is a big thing that's missing that could really help kids 
um, out and, like, you know, understand, like, if you're a good leader in whatever capacity, even if you are at the bottom of the bottom of the food chain, you're getting the person that gets Starbucks, Starbucks. Like, even when you're down there, leadership is important. And it's when you have someone who's a leader and a self-starter, it is invaluable. You know, like, I'm sure you've managed people on both ends of the spectrum. And it's always those people that, like, if they're not busy, they ask you what they what, what you need help with. Um, it's people that take initiative. It's people mm-hmm. that are crazy. Those are the people that always stand out. And mm-hmm. it's not the people back it's not the people that are just always complaining like you're not gonna get where you want to be if that's your mo the whole time totally and also just like understanding that for all the perceived glamour around fashion there's so much just like in the weeds unfun unglamorous (laughs) tedious work to be done every day no matter what level you're at Mm -hmm. i think that for me has always been thing I've struggled with most with certain members of my team is that they're like, yeah, but I want to do like the buying. And I'm like, dude, this is the buying. This is the buying. Okay. Making sure that the orders get to the warehouse and following up with the vendors and working with the warehouse when it's wrong. Like this, this is the yeah. buying. Okay. But picking out the stuff is like five minutes of your job. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's, Certain things, um, I, I don't want to generalize at all, but, like, a lot of the younger kids, they often come in and, like, have this idea that they want to just graduate and start their own business. And, like, it's great to have that, like, like that's amazing that you are so confident and that you have this passion that you're like, yes, this is what I want to do. But I always, like, recommend to those people to just work a little bit first because, there's so much that you need to learn mm-hmm. in the to be successful. And it's not necessarily like this, you got to pay your dues and you got like, Oh my God. Oh. I was just going to say that because I hate that. You've got to pay your dues. My mindset. Cause that usually just means you've got to take abuse. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I totally have had that boss. He's like, well, they got to pay their dues. And I'm like, they don't need to work until like 10 o'clock at night doing data entry either. Like let's, Let's be real here, you know, but I do think like whether you have your own brand or you're in a higher level position, most of your job, it turns out, no matter what your job is, is that you're doing a lot of crisis management and Mm -hmm. you kind of don't know how to fix those problems until you've like had to do them kind of. Do you know what I mean? So like you have to start at the bottom just to learn how to fix things. And I think when people are like, I'm going to start my own brand, and then they never have to have that moment where they have to work somewhere else, they're missing that crisis management piece. And yeah. so when things go wrong, they're, like, paralyzed. But if they mm-hmm. had worked a couple years somewhere else, they'd be like, oh, well, you know what we need to do is we need to do this, or we can get this kind of label, or we can air it in, or whatever needs to happen. And so, I mean, I can't imagine going off and starting my own brand, like, right at the beginning of my career. Not that I even started one right now, but if I had the money to do it, I could be very successful at it because I understand how everything can go wrong. Yes. That is, yes. Can I clap for you right now? And it's not only just, like, going through those experiences. It's also, like, witnessing how your manager attacks those problems. Mm -hmm. You could have a manager and you could be like, note to self. Never do this when I'm a manager. 
Or yeah. you can have a teasing manager that you're like, look at how she handled that situation. Like, amazing. Mm-hmm. Under so much pressure and stress, and this is what happened. I'm going to remember that for when I'm in a position like that and how I address my own employees. So that, like, learning from your management, whether you got a good one or a bad one, you can absolutely learn from them either what to do or what not to do. Totally, totally. If I could just give the, the youth one one little morsel of advice before we depart here. Okay. Because um, I, I think a lot of times when kids are going to graduate, and I know I felt this in a certain way, too, where, you know, you have these ideas of what companies you want to work for. And, oh, I really want to work for this brand. Oh, I really want to do this, right? But the likelihood that you're going to land a job at one of those places is kind of low. Um, mm-hmm. Also, work for a company you really love for, like, at your peak, because you'll get more out of it. I think, oh, my God. Like, Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I tell my students and I tell um, even people that I mentor or, you know, that I, I work with that are starting out, always be in a job where you're learning. Whether mm-hmm. or not you're learning exactly what you want to be learning, that's, that's not necessarily the case or something you need to really worry about. But be in a place where you're constantly learning new things. If you're not learning anything new, then leave. If you're learning stuff that you feel could be translated in one way, shape, or another to your career as a whole, then stay. You know, especially if you do have a good boss or a good mentor at your job. Like, lean on those people to help you grow and one day they'll help you get to where you want to be. Totally. I agree. And I will say this, that applies for like all levels of your career, because I will also say that when you stop learning, going to work becomes a job and you don't like it anymore. It's it's yeah. like such a slog. Like I'll definitely say my last job, there was like not much for me to learn. And mm-hmm. I was bored. I was bummed. Yeah. Your brain, your brain likes that stimulation, you know? So that's Absolutely. my advice. Mm-hmm. I love <laughs> well, it. Well, it was so nice to talk to you again, Meredith, and we still have to figure out what our next episode together is going to be. So I I have so many, I have even more ideas, so we got to talk. All right. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for talking to me, Meredith. It was just so nice to talk to you again. Call anytime. This is the time in the episode where I would give you some final parting words, some motivating thoughts. So here's what I'll say. As we wind down 2020, a year that has changed all of us, and if it hasn't, we need to talk. (laughs) Let's think about what we're going to do next year. How do we spread the word about the dysfunction of the fashion industry, of the ways that marketing tricks us into buying stuff, of predatory schools, the exploitation of workers all around the world? How do we support one another in changing our habits and our relationship with stuff? This is what I'm thinking about all the time right now. How do we get more people involved in the movement? How do we build this community of people supporting one another? Because more people equals more power to make bigger changes. If you have some suggestions here, please reach out to me. I want to hear them. And in the meantime, hang in there, stay strong, and wear a mask. Oh, yeah. And don't give your money to assholes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Source. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Like I said, 
It magically pushes us into some sort of chart where people might see us. We'll get new listeners. We'll build the community. That's just step one to building this movement, right? And tell your friends for the same exact reason. And don't forget, if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an Anti-Brunch Society pin and membership card because I appreciate the time that you put into it so much. It means so much to me. And I love reading your positive reviews. That lifts my spirits so much. Thank you to all of you who have shared our content or recommended us on Instagram or just reached out to say, hey, I love hearing from all of you. As always, if you ever want me to share a source for the statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, please get in touch. I have so much information I could share with you. Maybe you need it for a school paper. Maybe you need it to perform a compelling argument for a naysayer. I've got you. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, a story to share, something to tell me for the Etsy-sode, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's the old-fashioned way. That's email, closehorsepodcast at gmail.com, or just DM me on Instagram at closehorsepodcast. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. We're having an awesome time over there, and I'll share a link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye, and happy holidays. Bye.